Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Self-awareness is the ability to focus on yourself and how your actions, thoughts or emotions do or don't align with your internal standards. Self-awareness sometimes feels uncanny and a bit intangible. I feel like my own self-awareness, my moral compass and all of its EQ friends have become stronger and louder in my late 40s. My guest today, Michael Bunting, is a best-selling author and leadership expert who has worked with global brands such as Qantas, Kellogg's, Swakowski, Hilton's Hotels, CSIRO and the big four accounting firms. He believes that less than 1% of the population is truly self-aware and would like to share his top insights for how people can grow vertically to cultivate more self-awareness in their lives. Michael has also recently written a book called Vertical Growth, which is published by Wiley. He's also written a number one best-selling book, including The Mindful Leader and A Practical Guide to Mindful Meditation, Mediation and a co-authored Extraordinary Leadership in Australia and New Zealand with Jim Kuzos and Barry Posner, the world's premier researchers in the field of leadership. Michael is a global expert on the integration of transformational leadership, development, mindfulness, adult development, mental health and cultural change. And his latest book, which we mentioned earlier, which was published in October 2022, covers three core skills every leader needs to master in the modern economy. It also focuses a lot on self-awareness. And for Michael, the answer to improving how we work and lead is called vertical growth, growing beyond your self-sabotaging pattern like self-doubt, insecurities, fear of failure or imposter syndrome to teach us our full potential and oddly becoming the sort of person that leads others authentically and stays true to your own core values no matter what life throws at you. That sounds pretty good to me. So welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you so much, Amber. Nice to be here. Podcasting remotely can be challenging, but it doesn't have to be. Since day one of the politics of everything, I have relied on Zencaster's all-in-one solution to make the process quick and painless, the way it should be for those of us who just love great content and want to get our ideas out into the world. If you know me, I'm obsessed with quality in terms of my guests, my sound, and everything about my show has to be great the first time. I'm time poor. It's so easy to use Zencaster. I'm not tech savvy and you don't need to be either. There's nothing to download. Just click on the link and off we go. Zencaster is all about making your podcasting experience easy and with everything from local recording to automated post-productions now in their toolkit, you don't have to leave your browser to get that episode done and done fast. I have a special offer for you and I hopefully you can experience what I have with Zencaster. Go to zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my VIP code, the politics of everything, all lowercase in one word, to get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. How good is that? I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. So, young Michael, what did you want to be when you grew up and did that early career path kind of take shape? It didn't. I wanted to be a professional golfer when I grew up and uh, my uh, if anyone plays golf, they'll know my short game, my putting wasn't quite good enough. And I also soberly discovered that elite sports is truly, truly elite. The difference between someone who's really good 
and someone who can make a living is usually quite a vast difference. It's probably less than 1% of all people that play a particular sport, I imagine. You know, it's well, just, yeah, yeah. I, I think even less than that. It's probably more like 0.01%. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, funny. Um, so do you still do some golf in your hobby time or did that sort of got to get left behind entirely? I got left behind for a long time and then I picked it up through COVID again. Excellent. So let's go on to this topic today. How do you define self-awareness and why does it matter so much? And I'm particularly struck by the idea that perhaps only 1% of us actually are truly self-aware. So let me start with the 1%. Of course, you know, we're using very absolute terms like because everybody is self-aware. I mean, you wouldn't be able to walk across a room without a degree of self-awareness. So the degree of self-awareness in everyone, what I mean by that is being able to turn it on and increase it at will. So in other words, if I said to you, and this is the 1% question, if I said to you or anyone in, the, in, in listening to this, could you please be self-aware right now? Deliberately choose to be more self-aware right now. And we've done this question, you know, thousands of people and definitely less than 1% of people know technically how to answer that. So most people will say things like, oh, well, I'll think about how I act or I'll uh, become aware of my impact on others. And, and none of that is self-awareness. So to get to the what is self-awareness, it's it's two words. And because I come from um, a, a tradition of, of rather intense mindfulness practice, mindfulness has this quality of being interested in what's real and happening now. It's not interested in any theory at all. So you'll hear this in the way I explain this. When we talk, it's, talk about self-awareness, there's self and awareness. So if we break that down, we go, well, what is awareness and what is self? Because I'm a, if I'm going to be self-aware, I need to understand both of those elements. The first is awareness. Awareness is, an, is a function of being present, concentrated, here now. So if, for example, you have a pen in front of you or a screen in front of you, whatever is in front of you, as you are witnessing it, seeing it, you're aware of it. But if you close your eyes, for example, you are no longer aware of it. All you've got now is memory of what you saw a few seconds ago. And then the mind fills in the gaps and you know, supposes it's seeing. Unfortunately, that's what the vast majority of people do with self-awareness. They have a kind of memory of their past and they kind of think about it. And then they go, okay, I'm being self-aware. But you're not. That's like you're not actually awareing what's happening now. It has to be now. Otherwise, it's not awareness. That's hard for most of us, I think, which is probably why a lot of us people struggle with mindfulness and meditation and all those bits and pieces. Yeah, we, we've been, you know, it's an interesting mindfulness. It was very popular sort of two, three years ago. But as the reality of the practice of it has become evident to most people, you know, most people have turned away from it because the average person's mind is deeply unsettled and unwell. So the, it's not at ease in itself. So when we practice mindfulness, what we theoretically should meet in presence is this relaxed, blissful mind that's deeply congruent and at ease, but almost no one meets that. They meet a disturbed, anxious, at odds, conflicted mind, and that's very uncomfortable. So most people then turn back to their numbing habitual, habitual patterns, like let me turn on Netflix. Or So in other words, most people are running from their own selves their entire lives, hence the lack of self-awareness. How can you be aware of something you're running from most of the time, your own mind, into distraction? Absolutely. And there's so many distractions, I guess. One of the topics in your book which really fascinated me is this idea of vertical growth. And I guess for most of us that 
kind of sounds like, you know, some exponential business growth, but I'm sure it's not. But how does that work with self-awareness? And is there some example which can show us how they play together? So vertical growth is the is the result of a good self-awareness practice. Uh, when we talk about, I didn't finish on self-awareness, when you talk about the awareness part, we also talk about the self part. To be, a, what is the self? Self is an experience of, it's a physical experience of being aware of the body is self-awareness. It's an emotional experience, being aware of the emotions is self-awareness. And then it's, it's, a, it's a mental experience. There's a lot of thinking. And then there's deeper things like beliefs and assumptions underneath that. But being aware of those. When you are not aware, as in not witnessing or awareing those things, you tend to get driven by a bunch of unconscious patterns, what we call in our book algorithms. And those algorithms come from our past. The most dominant pattern we see in our work is the pattern for approval. So for most people, somehow they're trying to earn approval. So as, as, I, as I'm speaking on this podcast, am I thinking, oh, am I coming across the right way? You know, but will people tune out? So there's a concern with, am I going to get approved of? And then vast majority of our actions that are approval-based we're not actually aware we're seeking approval. And the easiest example most people can relate to would be Donald Trump. Aside from, I'm not going to make any political statements. <laughs> here, Donald Trump is an interesting psychological study because he has the guy who's the president of the United States, or was the president of the United States, is a billionaire, has everything you could want, but he's constantly begging for approval. It publicly, like he's basically saying, look, I'm the best president that ever lived. There were more people at my inauguration. Psychologically, that's a person begging for approval. Now, why would he beg for approval if, if, he, sorry, if he felt complete inside? Vertical growth is the moment where you witness or see that pattern in yourself and you see its suffering and its struggle within you. And then you have the option, the availability to drop that pattern, to let go of it. The tricky part with vertical growth is that we are not aware of our patterns. Very, very few people are aware of the patterns. And I'll give you another really easy example. Uh, one of our clients declared that, they, that their deepest value was integrity. They then went on to share a couple of months later that their number one challenge as a leader was avoiding conflict. I asked them, are you aware that you're out of integrity when you're avoiding conflict. Yeah, and she right. was completely clueless. What? No. I love integrity. Well, when you're avoiding conflict, you're being driven by a pattern of fear, and that fear is overwhelming your honesty. But she had no idea of it. And unfortunately for most of us, we live our entire lives with a vast majority of our behavior uh, and our patterns of behavior we are unaware of, and then we usually blame other people for those patterns of behavior. You are making me angry for example. Yes, that's very common, isn't it? You sort of, yeah, you kind of shift that, I guess, that that blame. So some of the pros of this vertical growth that you explain in the book, um, there are sort of four areas which I kind of tapped into. Create an environment of psychological safety and you can get better at empowering others and also setting and protecting your boundaries, which I think is really important and I have only learned to do that in my 40s, to be honest. And the final thing was increased confidence how do these four work together and do they need to work together at all times or are you tapping into these depending on the situation and what you're experiencing? They come from a perspective of a very settled mind that's understanding the nature of suffering. So, for example, when we are not making other people feel psychologically safe, 
we're typically threatening them or trying to shame them. You know, so if you say to a child, you do that or else, we're trying to, we're threatening that child. We're wanting that child to feel scared so that they comply with our wishes. This is not, and when this happens in the workplace, this is not psychological safety. As we begin to become more aware and we vertically grow, we begin to understand that whenever we're make, trying to make others suffer, we are actually coming from a place of suffering within ourselves. You know, you would never say to someone, the secret to happiness is cultivating fear and cultivating <laughs> judgment of, of everyone. That's the secret. Like, what? But we do these patterns daily, you know, hourly, and we're just not aware of them. Part of the reason, particularly on psychological safety, is that the average person's internal experience is not psychologically safe. So most people have an inner judge. You interject your parents' voice from when you're little. Oh, absolutely. We all do that, I think. It we doesn't all... matter how old you are, though. It's just no. strange. It's not an age thing, I've discovered. No, it's actually don't a, grow it. <laughs> it's a natural part of growing up as a kid. Unfortunately, you stay psychologically a kid while you have and then a judge, because the judge, the critical voice inside your head, speaks to another part of you, which is basically a little little person who's not really grown up yet. The interesting thing about that is, is the way our voice speaks to us, that inner judge speaks to us, is fundamentally psychologically abusive. It doesn't speak to us with respect or kind. You know, you're stupid, Michael. Why did you do that, you idiot? You know, it, it's easily it easily speaks to us in a way that's violent. Its goal is to make us feel ashamed or scared so that we comply with its edicts. And because the judge is convinced it knows the secrets of all secrets of life, and most particularly the secrets to your own endless contentment, endless approval, endless safety. But of course it doesn't because it's an old echo of most of us had dysfunctional parents in one way or the other. And so we, we are not even internally psychologically safe with ourselves. It's very, you ask the average, average person, how would you practice compassion with yourself? Most people would assume if you're compassionate with yourself, you'll never get out of bed. You'll never do hard work. You've got to drive yourself, push yourself, judge yourself, stand it up, you know. And what this reveals is the average person has a deep lack of self-trust in, in their own natural responsible nature. So that's the part of psychological safety. Once we begin to feel content and and well inside ourselves things like empowering other people for example is another thing you mentioned become an act of joy but if you're insecure empowering other people can feel threatening we've had this multiple times as leaders you give them all the techniques of course yeah and you see that with leaders sometimes who you know for women they call it the queen bee syndrome where you don't help other women for example because you, you know you have to do it the hard way and you think that's going to keep you Safe and empowered, yes. I guess. So we already, so we we are we're constantly revealing to the educated eye of, of someone who understands self awareness. We're constantly revealing our dysfunctional patterns. You know what they say when you judge someone, you're saying more about yourself than you are about them. And it's this. Yes, it's this, um, I agree with that. The mind is not at ease, and when I say the mind, it's kind of an odd concept. What I mean is internally, and mentally, and emotionally, we're not at one with ourselves, we're not at ease. And so from this, from pain comes pain. When we're in pain, we inflict pain on others. One of our favorite sayings is, when we are well, our wellness spills onto others. When we are unwell, our unwellness spills onto others. Please be well. 
Absolutely. No, I agree. Look, a couple of years of uh, pandemic life has led to some trends and, look, quiet quitting was something which was big in the past sort of 18 months or so and it's very much a term which is used in popular speak to describe work culture where people have been stepping back a bit maybe from the grind, if you like. Another trend you highlight that just as potent for the workplace as we head into 2023 is the image management focus. And you're saying in your book that 40% of the time we spend at work is focused on managing our image rather than the core tasks that will add value to the organisation that we are working with or for. If you're someone who struggles with perfectionism or imposter syndrome, this could be an issue, I guess, that's holding you back from achieving your career and life goals. How does that really create issues for us? And I would like to challenge the idea that isn't part of working with others in a company, particularly a big organisation, a lot about how we appear rather than what we do because to me that sort of particularly in corporate culture is seen as the norm, if you like. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. You know, we're not being naive in suggesting that you just stop all your image management tomorrow. What unfortunately occurs though is when we're image managing, when we're trying to appear, you know, a certain way, the most interesting thing is that image management is dependent on a loss of integrity. So the moment we're in any kind of image management, we're also out of integrity. We're not, we're not acting from a place of congruence or truth. And of course, senior leaders got to senior leadership all too often through playing the game, right? The political game. And so once they get to that, that top, you know, ironically, those same people get to the top when they were in middle management, they would suffer as a result of all the politics and image management, and then they unwittingly perpetuate it when they get to senior management. So what we're saying initially when we work with our clients is we, we typically work with the CEO and the executive team, and we, we analyze the cost of image management, and we look at the alternative. It has to be set from the top. If you're in the middle of an organization and you're a leader, the very minimum you can do is to start to try and eliminate image management from your own team, because image management is lonely, and painful. You know, what we found over and over again is that when people are pretending they're okay, for example, which many people did through, and in many work cultures did that through COVID, there's a tremendous sense of isolation and loneliness that comes from it. Almost, and in the, in the inner judge gets going even more. It's like, why am I the only one is suffering? Everyone else seems to be okay, right? So image management is also the, the core of imposter syndrome. Another way of saying it, yes, there's one part playing the game, but most of us image managed even in our marriages you know how are you doing i'm great oh the passive aggressive behaviors you yeah know, absolutely and they can become um, habitual i suppose too you don't even they, think about it they come from they come from image management's origins are from our childhood so uh, dr gabor mate one of the leading if not the leading expert on childhood trauma describes it as we have two fundamental needs when we are little we have the need for internal integrity so being at one with ourselves which is also a survival need. You need to be sensitized and, and clear as a child, you know, sense danger in the forests. So being integrity to yourself is one core need. And the other need is connection or attachment to your parents. Unfortunately, as soon as one is threatened, so in other words, if my integrity is threatened because my parents are telling me to do something that I is not in my nature, they're telling me to play music when I don't like music, what the child always does is sacrifice in integrity for attachment because if you don't have attachment, you die yes. if your parents are. And so m for most of us, by the time we've got to two, three years old, our, our internal sense of integrity is long gone. 
because we've had to constantly adjust to our parents' edicts and what they approve of. You know, oh, you're so good when you do well at X. Okay, that's what I'll do. We orient, we're immediately orienting to what gets me approval. And it's a biological need at that point. But again, most adults, we would sort of lovingly say most adults are really only children psychologically still running around in an adult's body because they haven't quite got to letting go of the need for approval and letting go of all that internal judgment. Until those two settle, it's really hard to feel adult. Absolutely. No, that makes perfect sense. So what are some of the best ways that you know that are tried and true to kick aside that imposter syndrome and make self-awareness a core part of our success story every day of our lives? The most first and most obvious step is this. It's deciding who you want to be that is not image management based. And the easiest way to do that is to, is to describe yourself like an inner code. And the best idea is an inner code based on some kind of virtue. What do we mean by virtue? Things like honesty, integrity, curiosity, kindness, generosity. Because what you'll find is that when you internally define, you know, a, a better way or, or like a, a standard that you want to put for yourself, like the life you want to, I want to live an honest life or I want to live a generous life. Once you define that, you very quickly meet your fears. And even if you choose generosity, for example, there will be moments where being generous feels you might lose out or you might you know give someone praise when you should try and claim praise for yourself in a corporate environment you'll very quickly get tested but there's fascinating research that shows that people who do define their virtues or values they live by and actually make effort to live by them it's one of the fundamental ways to deal with anxiety and depression so it redu dramatically reduces uh, anxiety and depression it gives you a longer life so that's the first step and then the second step is very useful is, is what we call cultivating body awareness, which is a mindfulness practice because the body never lies. So one thing that we know about the mind is the mind lies all the time. You know, you're eating a candy. Most of us would have lied a lot to ourselves, you know, through the Christmas New Year break, for example, where we're, you know, I'll eat that extra, i have that extra drink. It doesn't really matter. It's going to be okay. The mind is a million ways to rationalize and excuse and justify and deny and blame um, for our unhealthy behaviors, whereas the body keeps keeps the score. So, you know, that extra drink, your body knows when it's time to stop drinking. Your body knows when it's time to go to bed. Your body knows when you're lying, for example. You know, I always, always notice when I'm not telling the truth, my body goes into kind of a nausea feeling. But for most of us, that we've stopped listening to the body because it's inconvenient. So what we've done is we've numbed ourselves and numbness is the root cause of dissatisfaction. You would never say to your child, I recommend a numb life. That's the secret. You know? <laughs> that doesn't make a fantastic bumper sticker. No, it doesn't. Admit. And unfortunately, you know, the, wor the work to denumb is to resensitize. And resensitizing can be inconvenient because sometimes when you're resensitizing, you're coming into awareness, a so way you're not in integrity. You're not. And for and that's why awareness work takes courage. It takes courage and conviction because it's not the, you know, the zombie life. It's an awake, aware life. And what happens over time is a recovery of wonder. So, you know, you, you could be 50 years old and you still you see a sunset. You've seen a million sunsets. Not a million, but you've seen, you know, thousands of sunsets. And you are moved to tears by the beauty of it. That is, that is the 
not numbness. A numb person might look at a sunset and it, it's pretty, but it doesn't really touch their heart and they're not really there. And that's the price tag of numbness. It's like this kind of disconnectedness. The problem with numbness, though, is when you're numb, you don't actually know you're numb because you're too numb to know you're numb. <laughs> it sounds terrible. Um, changing tack a little bit, I'd love to ask you, what's the best advice you were ever given and why? Uh, there's multiple, but I think probably for me. You can only choose yeah, one, unfortunately, choose Michael. One. It's the triage of I'm going to choose advice. one. Um, it was a mindfulness teacher who asked me this really simple question. He said, because I was not into all this kindness, compassion business. I was into precise awareness work. And he said to me, what's it like when you're sitting or with someone who's a genuinely kind human being, like genuinely kind? What's that like? And I pondered and I said, it's like you've come home. And as I said it, it struck me. It's like, wow, that's a gift to give people. And that was the day I decided kindness is well worth cultivating because I would love for the people that I care about, my clients, to feel at home when they're in my company. And I'd love to feel at home in myself more. So just that simple, you know, wasn't a question really, is, is coming to the understanding how significant kindness is for ourselves and our world was probably the best piece of advice or, or question I've had in the last 15 years. If we spoke again in a year, what would be your number one goal to have achieved and why? To let go of uh, all goals more because to be more present and let go of goals. We have this weird belief Interesting. We have this weird belief that when we get goals, we will somehow get more fulfillment. It's all a lie. It's more like living. Well, it never ends, does no. it? I mean, I remember years ago speaking to someone who was, you know, wildly successful financially and all the other boxes you might tick and um, it, he, he actually turned and said, the problem we have is we never know when it's enough. Correct. And you're cultivating, this is the worst part, you're cultivating a not enough mind the whole time. You're actually cultivating a way of being that's constantly not enough. And then you magically think that way of being you've spent years cultivating will suddenly change when you get the thing you, you but the habit's way, way stronger than the, the thing you actually get. So, and the worst part about it as well is if you get something like an object, you're immediately fearful of losing it. So you're now suffering with the very thing you thought would bring you happiness. Like the big house or the fancy car Correct. or all the bits, yeah, yeah the it's, toys. It's a never ending, as soon as you are convinced that happiness is, out, is dependent on something outside yourself or your own mind, you're already gone. You're trapped. Yeah. Good advice. As we wrap up today, what would be your final takeaway message for us on the politics of self-awareness? Self-awareness is your way to rescue yourself from those patterns in your life where you feel a victim. It's like, why can't people just, why can't my boss, why can't I, can't, 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 this, that, that what we call the when-then game or the if-only game. If you're playing the when X happens, then I'll be happy. Or if this person could just be like that, that's a sign that you've, you're believing in fairy tales that are not real. And self-awareness can rescue you from that suffering pattern. Fantastic. It was such a deep and rich conversation. We've covered so much in just under 30 minutes, but uh, I'm sure there's lots more people could learn from you. So if you do want to connect further with Michael Bunting, there'll be some details on the show notes as always. Until next time, do take care. Thank you so much.
If you're interested in investing in the future of podcasting, I have an opportunity which might interest you. Zencaster has been my platform of choice since I began recording the politics of everything in 2017. They now have an opportunity to join in their crowdfunding action. So I want you to jump on and have a look at wefunder.com forward slash Zencaster. That is W-E-F-U-N-D-E-R.com forward slash Zencaster and see if this is an opportunity which might interest you. What I love about Zencaster is you can record, produce, host, analyze, and monetize all in one platform. I think it's a great chance for you to have a look at if this something might interest you. If you want to invest, jump on. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.